Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Government Accountability Office, the chief oversight arm of Congress, has a new chief scientist. He joins the agency after having been chief scientist at Noblis, a nonprofit research and consulting institute with many federal clients. Sterling Thomas joins me now. Dr. Thomas, good to have you with us. It's good to be with you. Well, first of all, why the jump from the private, albeit nonprofit sector, into government and in the congressional branch? Yeah, it's a, it was a, a, a tough decision, actually. You know, I've had a, a nice, long and, and very wonderful career at Noblis, doing many jobs and then finishing up as their chief scientist. The nice thing about working there was that I did have a lot of opportunities to do different types of science. I had oversight a lot of the research that they did. But the opportunity that was available at GAO was to take an even broader view of the science technology that's done in the federal government and and really have much more of an opportunity to have a significant impact in the policy side, which I had done a little bit at Noblis, but not near as much. And so the opportunity you know, was hard to pass up of being able to go and have this broad overview and oversight to help Congress in all of the science across the government, provide some policy guidance, my thoughts, and then potentially have an impact on where some of that work goes. And the portfolio is quite broad because there is so many agencies that conduct science directly. But then there is billions and billions of dollars in scientific grants that are let by agencies. So you pretty you have kind of a big view of science in the United States. It's a lot. And actually, that's, that's a little bit of what's changed from my predecessor. So the previous chief, chief scientist at GAO had interactions with a lot of the agency, was really focused on the STAA part of it, is where a lot of the scientists exist at, at GAO. That's the part that provides kind of the the technical assessments, the spotlights that you read, a lot of the scientific uh, guidance. Um, but my role now is actually chief scientist across all of GAO because I am responsible for not only supporting the scientists at STAA, but also all of the other components of GAO that do a lot of the audit work. Because just as you said, science technology is almost embedded in all of the way the government operates. You know, there's some component that's important there that needs to be understood and often needs to be addressed in their audit work and oversight work. And so it's a uh, very broad. There's a lot of things I can look at all the time. Some of the things I, I spend, some of the stuff I spend my time doing is just kind of evaluating what needs my attention, what doesn't. And, um, you know, and that's uh, something that I'm working on as I'm growing my role here. Because there are other chief scientists in the executive branch. There's kind of a community you're joining. Yeah. And, and I've been meeting with some of them in the executive branch and the strategy side, you know, the White House with the Office of Science Technology Policy. I've met with them already um, and certainly in the agencies meeting with the chief scientists there, the parts of the government that are doing lots of advanced research. So folks that like DARPA and IARPA um, and ARPA-H. Uh, and so it really is a community of folks that are trying to make sure that the government is moving in the right direction, that we're being responsive to you know, the, um, the, Cong the Congress, as well as the American people. I mean, both sides are, are our constituents. And Congress gets knocked a lot, but there is some pretty good scientific and engineering and economic chops among members of Congress. It's not universal, but there is some expertise up there and also in the staff, I would say. Yes, absolutely. And and that's something that we're trying to, you know, continue to augment and grow. And so, and I'm glad that you brought economics into it because that's something else that we're, we're bringing into this uh, as well. So we've had, I've had a great opportunity to meet with, with both, both sides, the House and the Senate and continuing in, into the next several months of going up and, and meeting the rest of the um, staff there. 
there's quite a bit of expertise, quite a bit of knowledge. And there's a recognition that in addition to understanding the science technology that they're making decisions about, that there needs to be an economic consideration. You know, in, in science and the government ranges across, you know, the entire spectrum from fundamental science, a lot of the work that we do, like the NIH and the NSF, but also going very much into the applied world of, you know, if we're going to bring in this new technology, this new capability, what do the underlying, underlying economics work? How do they work so that we know that, you know, small business or larger businesses can adopt this technology, make it available to the American people and improve people's lives. And so those types of, you know, economic and technology discussions are happening all the time. And there's quite a bit of good knowledge up on the Hill for that. We're speaking with Dr. Sterling Thomas. He is the newly appointed chief scientist at the Government Accountability Office. And tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you worked for Noblis for a long time. What kind of scientist were you originally when you actually did the science directly? <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a great question. I've done lots of great things. I started my career actually doing cancer work. I was in academia. I worked at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, where I also did my PhD and worked on the gene signaling networks associated with lung cancer and colon cancer and some of the other types of diseases in that realm and really got an opportunity to understand deeply kind of genetic signaling, which is what a lot of my foundational work is. And a lot of that's mathematical modeling. And I did laboratory work as well. So I been kind of both sides, the computer modeling and actually growing cells and all that stuff. Then I actually moved to Noblis pretty early in my career. And there I did really focused on infectious disease. A lot of it focused on national security issues, trying to make sure that, you know, we are developing the technologies to detect and treat people if, if a, you know, some sort of pandemic happens, like what happened with uh, COVID-19, and then developing the algorithms behind that, and as well as some of the laboratory detection methods, a lot of work in gene sequencing, a lot of work in identifying, you know, different uh, components of the of diseases and the viruses and how they move kind of the evolutionary drift types of stuff you you learn about. And that was the fundamental work that I did. There's actually quite a bit of other kind of tangential work. I did a lot of data science work. I actually still teach data science at George Mason University. I actually did some cyber work for Department of Homeland Security and uh, developing algorithms for detecting cyber attacks. So my work's kind of gone all over the place, but uh, foundationally, I'm a biological scientist who studied genetics. Right. So a lot of the work you have done is fairly modern. That is to say, you can't write algorithms for detecting cybersecurity flaws with a slide rule anymore. No, my father's also a scientist. He has a slide rule. He shows it to me once in a while. I'm not exactly sure how it works. All right. Well, any uh, Generation Z listening, look it up, slide rule. <laughs> it's a good thing to have in your pocket along with your protector. Well, what are your goals for GAO, science and technology assessment. I mean, that's a that's a kind of a special unit within GAO that's alongside all of the regular directors that oversee different pieces of the government and different channels. The goals at STAA, which is that science and technology director you're talking about, is really to continue to push forward the quality of science that's coming out. They have excellent quality work. GAOs, if there's one thing everyone knows about GAOs, the work that they do is, you know, you can't uh, challenge it. It's very, very good. But I do want to accelerate the volume and the speed. You know, it's hard to keep up with science and technology, and we need to as an agency, because in the end, our clients, Congress, have to make these decisions very quickly. I mean, you look at, you know, the, the recent work in artificial intelligence, specifically focused around generative AI. I mean, that is a very fast moving technology and capability. And um, GAO has been able to kind of keep up on that, but I want to make sure that as our reports and, and strategy and technical documents that describe the technology come out, they're coming out in a much more timely manner. So the goal really is to accelerate that pace 
um, to increase the volume of work that we're doing so that we are hitting, as you said earlier, this broad realm of all of the types of things that we are responsible for um, providing guidance to the Hill on. And so um, the main goals, yeah, are speed and uh, volume and then, you know, maintaining the quality, really embedding our scientists into the scientific domain. You're going to see much, many more GAO scientists at uh, scientific conferences, publishing in peer-reviewed journals, um, talking about the work that we do so that, um, you know, they can maintain their connection to the industry. And do you feel you have the resources to do that? Because you mentioned basically faster and better, and the engineers will say, great, just don't ask us also cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the good thing about uh, GAO is that, you know, we provide a return. The leadership at GAO, you know, often talks about how much each dollar invested brings back. And so, uh, because of that, we we do have a good budget to be able to continue this work, and we are growing our team, and we'll continue to grow our team, and we'll continue to look for additional resources. You know, but like in the end, this really is an opportunity to, you know, develop this capability, make it as broad as it needs to be, so that you know the Hill and Congress has the guidance that they need to make these decisions as they're writing policy. I mean, these things impact the policy Congress writes impacts not just scientists; it impacts everybody. Because in the end, we want that technology. We want that capability to be available to um, our businesses, to our, our you know, citizens and all the people who, who depend on, on us. And partly because of what happened during the COVID crisis and partly because of the fact that we live in an age of orthodoxies and certainties, whether they're so or not, but people seem to cling to them as if it was a matter of life and death. And science has gotten caught up in that grinder. And people say, well, the science says this or the science says that. A real scientist says, well, this is the best guess we have, but almost everything ever proven in science has been unproven later on. And that's the scientific process. Do you worry about that idea of citing science says this, and therefore this orthodoxy is hereby imposed on the earth? <laughs> yeah, so um, we could spend a lot of time talking about science education. <laughs> yeah, we could. That, but yeah, I mean, the scientific method comes down to kind of a fundamental statement of you're right until you're wrong. Right. And, and that's the reality of it is that, you know, it's continuing to move forward. It's a hard thing to understand if you didn't kind of, you know, be trained in that realm of it's OK to it has, it's very important that scientists come out in the moment and say, this is what we know and this is what we think is right. And then some other scientist a month or a year later says, actually, no, they were wrong. This is the way it is. In the end, they weren't actually wrong at the time. They had the best knowledge. And then we move forward. That's the progress. And that's the reality. It's hard for people sometimes to grasp, and it's even hard sometimes for agencies to grasp because you look at an agency like GAO, their responsibility historically has been audits. And you know we do much more science technology now, which is excellent. Um, with an audit, you're looking retrospectively, you're saying, okay, this is what happened. you know, And this is absolutely truth of what happened, which is you know the fundamental requirement of GAO. Um, it's a little bit of a culture change that you know happened before I got there, uh, but that is really embedded now in GAO, the scientific technology culture of looking forward, of saying, you know, this is the technology. What we understand today about generative AI is going to be different than the way generative AI looks in six months and 12 months. It just is. That's the way the technology progresses. It doesn't mean that what we're saying today is wrong. It just means that what we're saying today is right today. And then it, it's going to change and evolve. I know we got, you know, kind of tangled up in that during COVID because people are looking for absolutes. 
it's not just a challenge of science, it's really a challenge of health sciences. When someone's sick and someone's, you know, has a major life impact of about science, you know, is impacted by science like COVID-19 was, or you think of many other diseases that change people's lives, you, you want absolutes. You want to say, this is what's happening because that's the way our brains need it and it makes us feel better. And unfortunately, that's just not the way science works. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that, that you do need to train. We need to train our populace to understand and, and have a better understanding of science. That's, another, again, another discussion. But, you know, I think it was it's always inevitable that scientists kind of get wrapped up in that of, oh, you were wrong a year ago. No, I wasn't wrong. It was just at the time that was the best knowledge we have. And that gets to the way we support Congress is that they're writing policies that hopefully last for a long time where they implement laws that stick around for decades. Um, so when we sit down and think about the policy of science, we have to develop policy that also allows for that continued expansion of knowledge, that continued growth of, of insight of how a technology works so that it doesn't just work today, it works 10 years from now. Dr. Sterling Thomas is the new chief scientist at the Government Accountability Office. Congratulations on the job. You didn't go there for the pay, but at least you can keep your mileage when you travel. Good to have you on. <laughs> it's great to be here. I enjoyed the conversation. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.